You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Have you seen the talk about that new Puss in Boots, Puss in Boots, Boots movie? <laughs> Puss in Boots? Uh, I have. Yeah. People are like loving it's it. It's so good. Yeah. Um, well, well, I probably won't see it in theaters, but I know. Add but it, it onto our list for real. Um, like a, it's like a Shrek vibe. It's got Shrek vibes. So, well, people said it's like, I don't know. I feel like it's. I don't know if it's just as funny as Shrek. I feel like people liked it because there was like a deeper emotional storyline. Yes, but, for sure. Um, well, but if you're a listen, Shrek are, fan, you got to watch it. Which, which we, we are. are. We um are. I think our listeners would be happy to know that we did watch the host because Ooh. we always talk about movies that we have to watch, and <laughs> we actually did watch it, and it was very very strange. If you don't know, the host is a movie based on Stephanie Meyer's other book. That mm-hmm. should have been a series, but I think she only wrote the first book. Only wrote the first book, and she has said up until like I th- I can't remember when it was released, like two thousand between two thousand and six and two thousand and eight ish. She released the host, um, and up until two thousand and eleven, she said I'm still working on the next two books. The outlines are there. The outlines are there. Well, honey, it is twenty twenty three, and we have not seen book number two. Uh, and Grace, kind of, you found the uh, like the Goodreads, and some of them kept updating it, like just waiting for the yeah. next book. And it's like every year, it's they like have sad. Like, <laughs> the name out and everything. And it was supposed to be released, yeah. So someone on Goodreads, like, well, I'm back again. I've graduated college, <laughs> got married. <laughs> this book is still not out, and I think she ended the review just being like, I'm just gonna like expect that this book will never come out. Damn, and stop updating. That's the worst feeling, though, like when you love something so much and you're waiting for like part two or something to come out mm-hmm. or like so, and something, especially if it's something that's promised, like, yes, there's going to be a second season or yes, there's going to be a second book. And then it just is indefinitely put on hold. We've all been there. Yeah. I've had that happen to me a couple of times where I'm watching a TV series and then I realize like it got canceled and there's no ending. And I'm just like, yeah, you're like, oh, just great. Put out a blurb. Just tell me what happens. I at know. Least. It's just a TLDR for the rest of the season, please. That's how I feel about Game of Thrones at this point. Well, OK, to be fair, I'm talking about the book series. First of all, I read the book series up until whatever book is out, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And, you know, the series is out. And so you're like placated a little bit and you're like, this is fine. At least with the series. But then once the series starts diverging from the books, you're like, oh, I really wish that like the books would come out because the books are really good. And now many, many moons later, I could give an F less about both the books or the series. There's so many characters in Game of Thrones that I don't understand how you'd even be able to remember like what the heck was going on at this point. Each many years later. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I would have to start over, which is, again, absolutely not. Never going to do that again. I'd rather mm-hmm. reread, like, the Wheel of Time series, which is 13 books long, and it was finished posthumously. Like, they even finish it after the guy died. You know, they still finish the series. And there's yeah. 13 of them. And I've read, I read, like, I think I read, like, seven, and I stopped for some reason. I think his grad school got in the way. And then... Years later, my brother's like, hey, I'm going to start the Wheel of Time series. I'm like, I can finally finish the series. I could, like, read it at the same time as him. It ne- never happened, just to say. Speaking of series, this is kind of a series. Oh. <laughs> a non-sequential <laughs> uh, podcast series called Two Girls, One Crossword. Mm-hmm. I'm Grace Stavinka. I'm Chelsea Rowan. Um, we are, in fact, your favorite weekly podword crosscast. And was it last week or two weeks ago? 
we talked about, I think it was the first episode of the year we talked about whether or not this was season three. Yes, but it's technically season two because we never, I mean, I feel like it's technically season three, but we're calling it season two because we never changed the last season. And that's this podcast. That is the move, the vibe of this podcast. We do what we can do. Not that you have to listen to the episodes in order, but then sure. that would help you understand some of the lore, I think. Yeah, there <laughs> is some do long-standing re- lore. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, should we get into Polapalooza? Oh, let's do the Polapalooza. So um, over on Twitter, I asked our followers, who was your Sanrio character? And I meant like, I should have clarified this, but I meant, you know, I don't, our followers are all different ages, but when you were a child, which is the main age that they market to, although they do market to adults, as Mm -hmm. we talked about Mm -hmm. last week, who was like the character that you would always get? And I just put like the four main ones that I remember from when we were younger, like Mm -hmm. these were the the main ones I thought. Hello Kitty, Kuropi, Batsmaru, and Pachaco. Um, 63% said Hello Kitty. So it's a classic which is mine too. Which is my basically. mine now, I would say. Yeah. And give us a give us a refresh on some of the characters in case people don't remember. Kurope, so Hello Kitty is, you know, the kitty. The cat. Um well actually a girl who is cat like. Yes. She's a human. Kuropi was the frog, mm-hmm. the little lime green frog with the big eyes. Classic. Cute. Classic. Bats Maru was the hot topic one. Yeah. Um, he was the penguin with the spiky hair and he always had like XO written under his name. Mm-hmm. And then Pachaco was the dog, the white dog with the black floppy ears. I think mine, I picked uh, Bats Maru. What is it? Bad mm-hmm. Bat Maru? How does it, how do you say it? Well, in one article it was Bad Bats Maru, but then in other places it just said Bats Maru. So I picked Bats Maru because yes, it's like very much like the emo hot topic one, but I think the one that I was more drawn to as, like, a young girl was, like, Emo Bunny. I forget the name of that character, though. Like, the um the black hat bunny. Yeah, the, like, her name is, like, Kur- Kurigami or something. Yeah, I definitely kind of leaned towards that when I was younger. But it wasn't an option, so I picked the other Emo one. Um, mm. But now, as an adult, for sure, I'm a Hello Kitty girly. I love Hello Kitty. She's so cute. She's so cute! She is adorable. I feel like Kuropi is really cute also because I just love green. Yes. The, and frogs are cute. Frogs are cute, mm-hmm. like, as a as an aside. And Chaco Cat. Yeah. There's so many cute characters. They're all adorable. I mean, there's a new... One of the newest characters they came out with is, like, Cinema Roll, and he's a dog. Cute. Yeah. Love that. Um, well, okay, Hello Kitty won in this poll, and then in second place tied with 13% each was Kuropi and Batsmaru, and then 11% was Pachaco. I guess Pachaco maybe wasn't that popular. Mm. I just always thought he was popular because that's when my sister always got, so I always right. felt like, oh, it was Hello Kitty and Pachaco were like the two main ones, but... Right. The more you know. Guess not. I guess not. The more not. you know. Oh, also, someone commented on um, the... You know, I talked about timekeepers and watches mm. two episodes ago and how my coworker had a watch that um, was like it it kind of like wound itself. And someone wrote to us and said, um, that watch is known as a self-winding watch. It has a half circle weight that turns as one moves their arm. As the weight moves, it winds the watch to keep it running. If not worn for a while, like you said, it would run down. Um, 
but he also says before they, I don't know, uh, before the self-winding watch was made, one had to wind their watch daily with the crown on the right side of the watch. Actually, now that Amazing. you say that, I feel like in older television shows or older movies, you would see like the man mm-hmm. wake up and get ready for work, like Don Draper vibes, and they just like winding his watch in the beginning of the day. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just a vision I created in my mind after this comment was read to me. But yeah, sounds familiar. Sounds right to me. I mean, obviously it was right, but <laughs> obviously I can't be bothered to do that. I don't always even make sure my phone is charged. <laughs> no, my day, phone is definitely not charged. But it is what it is. Um, speaking of phones charging, the reason we use our phones is to read our notes. And um, the next section that we must read is our hits and shits. Not- Whoa, segue queen. Right? I mean, it wasn't the best segue, <laughs> but we'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> I was telling Chelsea before we got on that for some reason I have like no hits and shits this week. I don't know why. I felt like I did a lot of puzzles, but it's just one of those weeks. weeks. Are just like that. It is some some weeks. Like I feel like I do like two puzzles, but I have like eighty hits and shits. And other weeks I'll do like five puzzles, and I'm like I liked three clues total. Um, not because I didn't like the other clues. It's just sometimes something tickles you one way, and sometimes something yeah. tickles you the other way. Well, I think another issue I have is it depends on if I've picked my, like, how early in the week I pick my topic. True. Because sometimes it's like, oh, I'm just, like, doing it to, like, find good topics. And then it's, like, all the ones that I highlighted. It's like, no, those were potential topics. It's not on my hits or shit. Right, 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 right. Um, I hear you. So I I might have more than you, so I'll just kick us off with the Friday, January 13th, Lynn Lempel, New Yorker. The theme for this New Yorker was pocket money. I thought it was really cute. The revealers were 59 across and 62 across. Um, and if you are a longtime solver of the New Yorker, you would know that they only recently introduced theme puzzles. So before that, you just have themeless puzzles and you wouldn't see things that you might have seen in, in like a New York Times puzzle, like rebuses and, you know, themes, right? Um, so there's a rebus in this puzzle and I love when there's a rebus. I love when I discover that there's a rebus before like you get the revealer almost, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of discovered ahead of time. You're like, I think this might be a rebus. I'm really sure about this answer. And then Matt's like, you always say it's a rebus. And I'm like, yeah, because it could be. Um, but it was in this instance. So 59 across. This is the revealer with 62 across a trifling amount. And what's found in four places in this puzzle. And then across 59 across and 62 across, the answers were small and change. So you're going to find small change or the like, names for various coinage in mm-hmm. a single block. For Cute. example, one across. Chutney, for example, was condiment, but the word dime is in the middle and dime was in one square. It was fun. Seven across, quite the sum, a pretty penny. So penny was in one square at the end. 31 across, rump location. Rump is a great word, by the way. Uh, and the answer was hind quarter. So quarter. Um, and then 65 across, Pulitzer winning. Colson Whitehead novel about a reform school in Jim Crow era Florida, the Nickel Boys, and these were all acrosses, and they also had, like, the, the Rebus worked with the downs, I didn't include those, but it was a fun puzzle, I liked the theme, and then I liked this answer, this clue and answer as well, 40 across, one with a habit. A nun. A nun, of course, it's just a good clue. Very nice, Lynn, thank you for that. What do you got? Here's a sister. A sister, um, sister, sister. There was no such. Sorry, okay. I saw the TikTok you liked of the <laughs> dogs dressed up as those women. It's amazing. Um, okay, the 
well, I really feel like I don't have any. Okay, the Monday, January 16th, New York Times by Michael Paleos. Mm-hmm. Um, just shout out to an old, to the Godzilla topic, Nine Down, Winged Godzilla Nemesis of Japanese film. Mothra, yes. who's like the one who's the most feminine and kind of Mother Earthy. Mm-hmm. Not really a, one of those like villains where later you're like, wait a minute, I actually agree with <laughs> what they're doing. Like Poison Ivy. Yeah. Um, and then the January 17th, Tuesday, New York Times by Erica Etten, Etten, another throwback to a topic, six down, bovine is to cow as corvine is to raven, crow, crow, sorry, crow, six. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's okay, um, but yeah, so I felt smart knowing those. There you go. Can I take us back to the Michael Paleos New York Times puzzle from January 16th? Do it. All right, another throwback. This wasn't a topic, but it was something that Grace posted on our Instagram many moons ago because this is crossword ease. And the clues no. <laughs> people use for it are hilarious. And this clue in particular is hilarious. 44 across, bird that has calf muscles. And the answer was emu. And head over to our um, Instagram to see an incredible sketch from Grace of a emu with amazing, amazing calf muscles. So, uh, yeah. I feel like emu i don't know i mean i guess it's been a while well i don't actually know if i've been seeing (laughs) emus or ostriches there's one place where in my parents live in memphis like a drive-through safari where they have a lot of one of those Mm. animals i feel like their legs are really skinny that might be an ostrich then who knows do emus have thick legs i feel like i think they don't we should find a a picture of it online because i feel like the image on our instagram is not anatomically correct Don't get your hopes up if you're looking for an emu to look like that in the wild. Not going to Maybe happen. the legs just look really skinny because they have, like, kind of a round body. Mm. No, they do have kind of skinny legs. I mean... I mean, they're just bird legs. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe Whatever. they're... Maybe compared to other bird legs, they've got more... They've more got definition? More juice down this there. This is literally... Yeah, I don't know. You should That's Google little... emu legs. I am. I'm looking at them right now. Yeah, they're tiny. I mean, maybe that right? thing at the top is the calf. Where's the calf? The calf is right above your ankle, right? I guess. I don't know what's the ankle. I don't know what's an ankle and what's a knee. <laughs> <laughs> if you're an expert on emus, please let us know. Um, uh, also from this puzzle, this is not a shit. It's just one of those things that I think makes Grace and I laugh. It's a generational thing, okay? And we've talked about this before on the podcast and had people write to us on Twitter be like, oh, people actually call it that. Like, that's what I called it. And it's like people who are like 15 years older than us, which is totally fine. Uh, it's just very not how it's done today. And it's 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 hilarious. Okay, 58 across. Hi, like many a Woodstock attendee. And the answer is five letters. And I had the letters O and N at the beginning. So I was like, it's got to be on, like, LSD or something, because mm-hmm. nobody would say on pot. Nobody oh, would say it... that. Well, it was on pot. And I'm like, okay, on making, saying on pot makes it seem like you're addicted to, like, a hard yeah. drug or something. She's on pot. Don't listen to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you just, I don't know. I just think it's so funny to see that, because I'm like, we would never say that. It seems so serious to say, oh, she's on pot, or she's on heroin, or something like that. It's like, you just yeah. smoke a little bit of pot. Anyway, also from that puzzle, I like when puzzles do this. Um, first, eight down, one of the Brady Bunch, and the answer was Greg. You're like, okay, cool, just like a fun little trivia thing. But then mm-hmm. at 25 down, 
one of a Brady bunch, Braid spelled B-R-A-I-D hyphen Y, one of a Brady bunch, question mark. And the answer was Platt. I think that's how you say it for like braids. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's fun. I like when they do callbacks like that um, in the puzzle. I'm like, I was like, I hope, I hope that whoever's writing these clues, whether it be this was actually from the constructor or rewritten by the editorial team at the New York Times, um, that they're having fun. Because it seems when I see that, I'm like, I hope they're having fun. Uh, and then the last one, 42 down, spicy cinnamon candy. The answer was Red Hots. And I'm just like, is cinnamon considered spicy? Is that what that's considered? I think, yeah, I think it's con- not spicy, but like hot, like as far as hot candy. Mm. I'm not, it's not a shit. It's more like I never thought of cinnamon as like a spice, but I have a friend who's like, oh, cinnamon is so spicy. And I'm like, what? I don't think it's spicy. I feel like it's very sweet. Like when you put it, when you cook with it. But mm-hmm. I think cinnamon candy is like hot, like red hot, mm. the gum. Yeah. Again, one, I never thought it was a, spicy. I was just one time on a thing. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. Uh, that's, that's all I had to say. Good. <laughs> this is the dumbest story ever. But one time when I was on a plane, I ate a whole pack of red hot gum because that's all the only snack I had with me when I was younger. And my mouth was like burnt for like two weeks. <gasps> oh my God. Maybe it is spicy. I mean, I've, maybe I've never had like enough of it to be like, oh, this is spicy. I love cinnamon gum. I love, I love, but it's like candy to me. That's why, like, I can't. Well, yeah, that's that's you and Tic Tacs too. So there's some things that's like I can't just have one of these. It's like expecting someone to have one M M&M, and M. No, you know, yeah, no, I know. Anything that's like sweet and in that come on. small of a portion, you know, orange Tic Tacs. You're telling me someone just has one orange <laughs> Tic Tac and is like, hmm, that sated me, right, for the day. Come on. Do not leave your orange TikToks out around this girl. She will annihilate them. What else you got? Um, well, this is kind of an interesting thing that I tried to look into. The January 19th New Yorker by Robin Weintraub. 34 across with, tel- with 12 down phrase meaning served with ice cream. And it's a la mode. And I was like, why does this mean that? Mm. So I, um, you know, a la mode means like in the fashion ah. in French um or like of the fashion Mm -hmm. and but apparently it was started in the u.s and there's like two different origin stories of how it started how it was like a guy who was at a restaurant who was the first one to get pie with ice cream on the side and someone else asked him like oh what is that and he was like oh it's pie a la mode and then he ordered it every day while he was there and it became a thing i don't know how that catches on so much but just a little interesting tidbit it's not a french thing all right um and then this is one that I want to hear your thoughts. Um, 13 across. Unidentifiable, unidentifiable cafeteria foods, say. And the answer was glop. Glop? I put slop originally. Yeah. I've never heard glop before. But maybe that's a regional thing. Also, I don't know. Have you ever had slop slash glop at a cafeteria? I can understand where that comes from. I know that they're not trying to be I think literal with that clue, but yeah, at, at like a school cafeteria. No, I, I am so weird with. I was so weird with food, especially as a kid. I could not eat this. I had like a peanut butter sandwich every day of my life. Speaking of peanut butter sandwiches, uh, I don't know what it was like uh, at public school in Miami, but in New Jersey, you know, I went to public school, and 
we had like through elementary school into high school, you had three options for lunch every day. Like the platter, it was called platter. So it's like the main Mm -hmm. meal of the day. So like the thing that they scheduled alternate, which was usually like a chicken patty or a hamburger, or you could get peanut butter and jelly, but you had to have like a well-rounded meal. And so in order for you to get peanut butter and jelly, they had to include all the food groups. And apparently the only food group that they were missing was dairy. I don't know how they came up with this. So they would make the the PB&J, cut it triangles, stack it on top of each other, and then take a piece of American cheese, cut that triangle, stack that on top of each other, and stack it on top of the peanut butter and jelly, and then wrap it in plastic wrap. And so it's not like the the cheese was in the sandwich, but it was like, eat this cheese and also eat the sandwich. And I could never, ever, ever get the PB&J because I felt like it tasted like cheese. Cheese, yeah. Anyway, that's New Jersey for you. (laughs) Cafeteria workers, like public school cafeteria workers, are really doing the best that they can with the very limited funds that they have. the nothing they have, yeah. And... I'm just like, who came up with that? And I mean, more power to them. I remember meeting people who went to private school and finding out they had like spaghetti and stuff for like their cafeteria <laughs> food was really good. It was like a college like. Yeah. Um, and I was like, that's what you have. I would be getting cafeteria food if that's what we had. Although in high school, we did have like uh, Pizza Hut. Like you could get a slice of pizza. Wow. We did not have that. I don't even know what lunch was like in my high school because i always brought my lunch in high school yeah but i did go to private high school but i don't have any feedback for you or intel on the type of food that they served there well thanks for nothing thanks you're welcome i'm just gonna put out here i really don't have any more heights or shites so take it away take it away ernie all right i'm gonna do the monday january 16th new yorker by elizabeth gorski one across this one threw me tell me if you'd ever heard this before one across brace and the answer is twosome. And I looked it up. Hmm. Twosome and brace are synonymous. So like another word to say like a p- pair or like a twosome is a brace. No, I've never heard that before. Never heard of that but before. But that means nothing. I mean, yeah, truly. Means <laughs> There's nothing. a lot of things I've never heard before. If you're a longtime listener of this podcast, we often have no idea what we're talking about. Um, I also liked 20 across. Crush in the fridge, say. It's your soda. Cute, right? Ugh. <gasps> oh. Orange soda. I just um, had some the other day. It's amazing. Uh, I love the orange or tangerine LaCroix because it gives you that crush vibe. Mm. It's nice. Yeah. Um, and then two shout outs to, well, not, this wasn't an intentional shout out by Elizabeth Sigorsky, I don't believe, but shout out to two older topics of ours. 26 Across, composer who collaborated with Picasso and Cocteau on the 1917 ballet Parade. And the answer is Satie. And if you've listened to one of our recent episodes, Satie was the guy who coined the term furniture music which eventually evolved into elevator music listen to episode 149 stop the music to learn more Uh, and then 33 across food label qualifier with a history of misinformation and the answer is no msg and if you want to learn more about msg well the five senses i guess uh, or the five Mm -hmm. tastes on your tongue in which i talk a lot about msg uh, episode 32, Open Wide and Say Omen. Great title, Grace. is awesome. Thanks. Some I feel of the like titles I'm, I'm are struggling st- with my titles lately. Like, I'm like... If you need help, let me know. I'm happy to spitball. No, I know, I know. But I feel like I've I've gone through, like, so many idioms. Like, there's <laughs> a lot of stuff. It's like, okay, I've done a lot of time idioms already, mm-hmm. like, games. So, 
I'm doing my best. Sometimes sometimes I get a good one. Sometimes the topics don't lend themselves to. Don't beat yourself up about this. Yeah. Don't beat yourself Mm -hmm. up. Uh, and then I'll end with the Wednesday, January 18th, New York, the Eric Agard puzzle. I'll have to give Eric a shout out. Um, I liked 20 across. Emphatic denial. And the answer was, Lord, no. I liked that. Uh, 32 across. Lead into it or whiz. And the answer is cheese, spelled C-H-E-E-Z, of course. Love to see that. Nice. Um, 56 across, language in which Katy Perry, Luke Bryan, and Lizzo have recorded songs. Do you know this? No. Simlish, of course. (laughs) They have? I knew Katy Perry did. I had no idea that Luke Bryan and Lizzo have also recorded in Simlish, but that's funny. Like, for the Sims game? For the Sims game, yeah. Oh my god. If you don't know, the Sims computer game... They have their own language called Simlish, and you can have your Sims, like, listen to music, and the music sometimes resembles sort of pop culture type music. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. this kind of sounds like a Katy Perry song, or, oh, this kind of sounds like a Luke Bryan song. It's because it is, and the singer is the singer itself. Not all artists will record in Simlish, but apparently Katy, Luke, and Lizzo have, so. We love to see it. Um, and that's all that I have, and that's, I love to end on a Sim clue. I really do. Um shall we flip a coin i think it's time to flip the coin all right i'm flipping the coin now Ooh, my gosh it's tails (laughs) it's tails it's tails my topic comes from the monday new york times um january 16th by michael paleos nine across most common street name in the u.s Maine. Correct. According to this clue. According. But my research says differently. <gasps> um, so I'm talking about street names. Oh, this is fun. I love street mm-hmm. names. I love um, well, when you're on a road trip. We just went on a recent, I wouldn't call it a road trip, but, you know, Grace, myself, and some of our friends, we celebrated New Year's together at a very small little Airbnb out in the, the wilds of Michigan. Um and as we're driving through, like, the countryside, you see different street names. You're like, oh, I wonder why this is called that or this ca- called that. Mm-hmm. And Matt pointed out one. He was like, oh, God, I can't remember it now because it has to do with the Civil War. But he's like, oh, that guy, that last name is the guy who lost a really important battle at such and such and whatever the hell. And I wonder if he, like, eventually left the East Coast and moved out here to, like, lick his wounds. And I was like, oh, we should look that up. We never did. Well, that is, I mean, that is kind of how streets got named back in the day. So, yeah, you should look up your current street name. I looked up ours, not that I can say it online. Nothing too interesting, mm. but, um, okay. <clears throat> well, this clue claimed that Maine is the most common street name in the U.S. Mm. Um, but according to the U.S. Census Bureau, <gasps> the most common street name in the U.S. is Second Street. Okay. Why is that? Well, because most places probably have a second street, and they probably also have a first street, but usually they give the first street a different name, like Main or Broadway. You know, there's Mm -hmm. different names Mm -hmm. for a first Mm -hmm. street. Um, Main is actually the seventh most common name, so I don't know. Uh, I mean, that could have changed. Yeah, I'm not sure. We're not trying to throw the constructor under the bus. We don't. We try not to do that, but we want answers. (laughs) 
this is just what I, you know, I'm talking about like common street <laughs> names, so I, I have to bring it up. But yeah, Second Street is the most common street in the U.S. And the article I read seemed pretty recent. I don't know when the Census Bureau um, survey went out, but also street names don't change too often. They don't. We'll kind of talk about that. So aside from numerical names, like the most common names are like second, third, fourth, fifth. Um, the next most popular non-numerical name is Washington. Hmm. Checks and out. And then after, yes, then after that, um, it's Park, Oak, Pine, Maple, Cedar, Elm, Lake, and Hill. So I, lots of tree names. I grew up on Cedar when I was a young girl. I grew up on 139th Street. That's so. not very popular at all. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, okay, but there's also kind of weird street names, like there's Fart Hell Road. In uh, Chambersburg, Texas, there's Dirt Road, spelled D-U-R-T, in Casco, <laughs> Maine. And there's a road called Poop Deck in Freeport, Texas. So Checks out. What's in a street name? Tell me. Who decides them? Etc. Tell me. I got a lot of my information from an article on apartmenttherapy.com called The Secrets That Street Names Can Tell You About a Neighborhood by Sarah Kuda. So... In the early days, and I'm talking mostly about the U.S., mm. sorry, everyone. Um, in the early days of the U.S., a city, settlers, or leaders would be the one to name the street. So a lot of streets are still named from that time. They would often use their own last names because why wouldn't you? Um, but as cities grew, their leaders often undertook a project called street rationalization. So this is when you rename and renumber streets to be more consistent, mm. a.k.a. rational. Mm-hmm. Um this was important because sometimes there would be like really long roads that had like three different names depending on what mm-hmm. city it was running through. Um, and it was also confusing for like utility providers, emergency um, responders. Mm. So they, a lot of cities like redid their street names to make more sense. So if that's why your street name seems boring, like 139th Street, um, that's probably <laughs> why. You mean the Spanish colonizers where they they didn't land in Florida and name your plot of land 139th Street or whatever? No. Well, um, you know, it's like as more and more land gets developed, like, well, I'll kind of, I'll kind of get into this. Mm. But, you know, I think there becomes there comes a time where it's like it just makes more sense to do. I mean, a lot of streets in Miami, South Miami, are numbers like that. For sure. Um, I mean, that's like in Chicago, like after the fire, there was like a small blessing in the fire that we were able to like regrid the city and like make the street naming more concise and so but on it's and so still, forth. But some of the names are still like just names. I'm like, yes. how does this, like when every time I take a cab home from the airport, I'm like, how do they know where my street <laughs> is? Like you, that's amazing that you would know all of... Well, taxi drivers like, are really impressive. I'm not yeah. sure what the qualifications, not to put an aside, I'm not sure what the qualifications here in the U.S. are, but I know, like, in the U.K., there are specific taxi drivers that have, like, like let's say, call it, like, a blue card or something in their badge, mm-hmm. and they've taken an exam where they can, like, they're given, like, seconds and be like, okay, the instructor be like, I want to go from here to here. What's the fastest route? And they're given, like, seconds to be like, oh, I would do this, 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 and this. And it's, like, almost impossible to pass, but if you pass, you're, like... You're revered as like one of the best cabbies in London, and I'm just like, and they make pretty good money. And I'm like, damn, okay. I I don't have the memory for that. No, 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 no. And especially in like older cities when it's not like Chicago's a grid system, so that's kind of nice. But thankfully, yeah, like something like London where everything is all sorts yeah. of effed up. Yeah. Um. Okay, but if your street name seems boring, 
but you feel like it's a street that's been around for a long time, you might be able to look it up and see if it had a different name before oh, and cool. like, kind of see what the origin of the street name is. So um, street names are really hard to change because like, especially ones that are in places where there's a lot of businesses because every business would have to like change all of their documents, their business cards. Um, it would have to be updated with like utility people, emergency post office like it's just a whole hassle to change your entire street name Mm -hmm. and i think that's why a lot of times they do like memorial names for um for streets so that they don't that's like how they kind of get away without legally having to change everything kind of like what they did Um, with like lakeshore drive here in chicago it's called lakeshore drive everyone still calls it lakeshore drive but it has a new memorial title and something deucible deucible yeah and um yeah when like google maps is like turn left onto Lakeshore Drive, da 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 and it goes on and on and on and on, and it's, like, this really yeah. long, like, memorial name, and we're like, mm, it doesn't really exactly roll off the tongue in the way LSD does, but... <laughs> no. Or what about when people text you, like, yeah, I'm on LSD when they're on their way to you? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Just Chicago things. Um, okay. <clears throat> but um, street names aren't always set in stone. They can be changed. This You may have seen this a lot recently because the U.S. is changing um street names like that are named after bad people in history Mm. so for example there is a lot of um street names named after people who um like stole land from the late from native americans Mm -hmm. because that's like when the streets were created Mm -hmm. um so people have changed that like for example in denver there's market street it was originally called mcgaw street which was named for one of the city's founders william mcgaw but mcgaw was like a bad person and was very violent whatever so the cities changed it from mcgaw street to holiday street named after the holiday family um but that name also eventually changed because the street became a hub for sex work and it was so stigmatized at one time that the holiday family was like we don't want to be associated with holiday street so then they changed it again to market street and now it's market street damn that's an example of why you might be able to get a street name changed Damn, like if you're if you're influential like the holiday family exactly you can get a street name change because you don't want to be connected to sex work fun i love this um okay in the same vein sometimes you like new new streets are still created new developments um are coming up and a lot of times they are named after um historical figures or modern important figures draw attention to a city's historically overlooked residents something important happened in that city so for example um david highway a county historian for hamilton county indiana and yes his last name is highway but it's spelled h-e-i-g-h um he selected street names for a development in noblesville indiana and for one of them he chose horde drive named for three black brothers who enlisted in the union army during the civil war one brother john horde returned to noblesville after the war and ran for the elected law enforcement position of city constable in 1880 he won the election served in the role for four years so highway says quote these are stories that aren't being told and they're an important part of the county's history there's this hugely important person who just through cultural amnesia has disappeared we need to bring them back and talk about them so Are you telling me that one day, because we have this incredibly famous podcast and we're contributing so much to society, that you and I could have a street named after us? Sure. Two girls, one crossword place. (laughs) Anything's possible. 
Uh, okay, so what about other new streets? Well, oftentimes these names are requested by developers of subdivisions. So according to the, to the article, quote, the developer submits street names to the city through relevant departments for review. The building, engineering, and public works departments all comment, but the departments that have the most input and veto power are police and fire. The concern here is that the street names are unique and intelligible enough for them to distinguish and find a street and property in an emergency. The post offices also gets like a final review. So... I love that for the post office. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, oh, no, no, Many no, no, no. The flower, flower street just isn't going to work for me. Yeah. <laughs> There's already a floral street <laughs> too close by. Uh, Many cities also have guidelines on the type of street names required for an area of town. So sometimes there's like different themes oh. um, in different parts of town. So there might be like a bird theme or historic names or tree is very common. Cute. Um, most streets in the United States are named for numbers or trees. Streets can also be named for, um, like, landmarks in the area. So, Windmill View Road in Cute. El um, Cajon, California. Um, I like and that one. they can also be named for an area's, like, primary business or industry. So, there's Promenade Chardonnay in the wine country <laughs> of Temecula. Promenade Chardonnay. Um, or for a physical characteristic of the road. So, there's 17-mile drive by Carmel-by-the-Sea, California, which is the 17-mile drive cute i like that there you have it another popular strategy is to name a street for its ultimate destination so um like oftentimes university avenue will end at a university ah. um, college avenue will end at you know connected university too but let's look at some fun subdivision themes that have popped up yeah okay in kentucky there's a derby themed subdivision mm. with majestic prince drive strike the gold drive oh my god um, in Indianapolis, there's a Sherwood Forest theme with streets named Robin, Marion, Friar, Nottingham. Cute. Um, the main entrance to that neighborhood has a gateway with fake castle turrets. We actually have topics on both of those themes. Yes. Grace of the Kentucky Derby and I also did Robin Hood. So love this for us. Love this for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, in Georgia, there's a subdivision named Twelve Oaks with Scarlet Lane, O'Hara Drive, Butler Court, Prissy Lane, Melanie Street, and Terra Court. Cute. Um, Sterling Heights, Michigan has a subdivision named after cigarette brands, Camel, Paul Mall, Winston. Actually, though, <laughs> yeah, I'm very anti-cigarette, and, but I would love to live on Paul Mall Street or whatever. <laughs> In Jacksonville, Florida, there's a fairy tale themed um, subdivision with Goldilocks Lane, Miss Muffet Lane, Red Robin Drive, Tinkerbell Lane. <laughs> Miss Muffet Lane. <laughs> Um, in Turlock, California, there's a Star Trek themed one that includes Picard Lane and Warp Drive that's yeah whoever came up with that is a genius i know citizen of the year (laughs) speaking of lanes drives roads etc what is like the difference between all of those they actually all have like specific definitions all right so road is like a most general category is a way that connects two points a street is a public way with buildings on both sides and it often runs perpendicular to an avenue um, Avenue is a public way, often in a city, usually with trees or buildings on the side, and it usually runs perpendicular to a street. Hold on, hold on. I'm doing, I'm doing math in my head. I'm like, okay. They intersect. I live in an Ave. Hmm. Yes, because you're also parallel with another very famous avenue. Mm-hmm. That's horrible to drive on because people jaywalk like crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, a boulevard is a wide street with trees on both sides. There's often a median in the middle with trees. I love a boulevard. It's so nice when you drive down a boulevard. You're like, oh, this is so wide. It feels 
really regal. That's, yeah. Um, a lane is a narrow road, often in a rural area. Mm-hmm. A drive takes its contours from the natural environment, like a mountain or lake. It can be a long, winding road. Oh. You know that. Interesting. A, a way is a small street off of a road. A court ends in a circle or loop and doesn't provide a throughway. Like a cul-de-sac or something. Yeah. Okay. Um, a terrace is used to describe a street following the top of a slope. I didn't know that. Okay. A place, which I used to live on a place, has um, is a road or street that usually has no throughway, which was true for mine. Okay. In Chicago, it's kind of can be different by city too. In Chicago, places for something that's like half a block. Mm, mm-hmm. um, a highway is a major public road that connects multiple cities. An interstate is a federally funded network of roads that are part of a highway system. It may go between states, but it doesn't have to, which mm-hmm. is why yes, Hawaii has interstates, even though it's not going in between any states. Mm-hmm. Um, a turnpike is part of a highway. It's a toll road, usually. A parkway is a large, decorated public road. I, there's a, a great parkway in New Jersey. It's great. A causeway is a raised road that passes across low or swampy ground or water. Oh. Didn't know that. But I feel like there are a lot of causeways in Florida, so that makes there sense. There you go. A beltway is a highway that surrounds a city. Mm, mm. An esplanade is a road near the ocean. I love that name. It's cute. Um, And here's some fun trivia for you. There's something called a Stravenue, like a street and avenue, (laughs) but they only exist in Tucson, Arizona. So that's (gasps) the trivia. In Tucson, Tucson, Mm -hmm. Arizona. (laughs) I'm just a human bartender from Arizona. Um, Okay. The definition of a Stravenue is a street which runs diagonally between and intersects a street and an avenue. That's kind of like lincoln in chicago yeah. in a way um mm-hmm. but we don't call it a stravenue here maybe we should start calling it a stravenue see if it uh lincoln strav yeah <laughs> um okay i'm gonna end with just some more fun facts on about different like street names in the yeah. world so in nova scotia canada there's three connecting streets called this street that street and the other street oh my god people when people are having fun in their lives and their jobs that's what i live for we love to see it. Um, in Alaska, in a place called Fanny Township, <laughs> there's a road called, all one word, far from Poopin, P-O-O-P-E-N, and it leads to Constipation Ridge. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, in Fairbanks, Alaska, there's the Yellow Snow Road. Cute. Okay. In Traverse City, Michigan, there's Psycho Space Path. All right, that's it. That's it. It certainly is a vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, in Washington, there's Kitchen Dick Road, <laughs> which is named after two families: the Kitchen family and the Dick family that lived at the opposite end of the same road. <laughs> um, there was a road in Henderson, Louisiana, named Old Trash Pile Road. <laughs> <laughs> but kids would get bullied about it at school. They would say they were like, "It's trash from Old Trash Pile Road." So they oh. finally changed the name. It's like, yeah, you Hello? that shouldn't be the name where a, like a house. Oh my houses god. Are. Um, okay, my final story. So in Idaho, there is a chicken dinner road, and this is the backstory. So um, there's a woman named Laura Lamb and her mother. I'm kind of confused on the ages, but I think Laura Lamb was an adult. Her mother was elderly, but they lived on like a country in a country house in in, in Idaho. And the mom was known for her fried chicken, mm. apple pie, and hot rolls. She mm. often had like people come over for dinner. That sounds amazing. So 
She was also friends with the governor. And one day the governor was over for dinner and Laura and her mom were like, the road outside is horrible. You guys need to fix it. Like it's full of potholes, whatever. And the governor said, if you get that road graded and graveled, I'll see to it that it's oiled. So Laura made sure that the road got graded and graveled, called up the governor. And the next day the county came out and oiled it. And this was around Halloween. So the day after Halloween, Laura's poor mom went out to get the mail and came in and was like, shocked and agog because people had written in huge yellow letters on the freshly oiled road lamb's chicken dinner avenue because she was known for her chicken dinner so then school children would ride the school bus like past the house and would say chicken dinner chicken dinner as they passed the house and the name stuck so now it is officially i love um, it chicken dinner avenue i love it i love mm-hmm. little stories like that or chicken dinner road yeah yeah so uh now i just want chicken and waffles i know is there really too much to ask for on this beautiful Friday morning? Honestly. No. No, it's not. Thank you. Thank you for validating my needs. Um, that's a fun topic. Very cute. Makes you wonder where our, like, <clears throat> obviously we can't talk too much about our, mm-hmm. our addresses, but. I, um. I know where I live, the neighborhood I live in. Most of the main streets here, avenues, whatever, are mm-hmm. um, named after various founders or important, like, political members or you know from this area that lived in this area many moons ago and the only reason i know that is because i follow this amazing chicago history account on tiktok and he often talks about the various neighborhoods and like where how they got started and blah blah blah. and as he's talking about the history of this neighborhood every person he's talking about has a last name that is also a street here and i'm like "Hmm, yeah checks out okay (laughs) and if i see one for your neighborhood i'll send it your way Please do. Well, moving into my topic, uh, I'm my topic comes from the Friday, January 13th, Lynn Lempel puzzle from The New Yorker, 11 down, muckraking journalist Ida, who took on Standard Oil. And the answer is Tarbell. So Ida Tarbell. Um, a pact that I made with myself this year for topics is that I will be pushing myself out of my comfort zone. There are so many things that like, I see in crosswords that I'm like, that is an interesting history tidbit or an interesting trivia fact, but I'm not interested in that type of history or I'm not interested in Mm -hmm. that particular era or whatever. um, And I just don't do them. Or I might like scare myself into being like, oh, that might be too dense or like, I don't know. I don't want to like, it might be too much to do the research on. And I'll just tell you right now, muckraking and journalism is not something I particularly have a passion for. Mm-hmm. but I'm trying to like get a more well-rounded understanding of history. And so that's why I chose this topic. Okay. It's not because I was I partic- that for you. Thank you. Um, I would have much rather done something food related or whatever. Well, sometimes you can let yourself have a little treat. I can, but you know, treats taste better. Like if you wait a little bit, you know what I mean? If, you, if it's at the right time. So that's why I did this topic. And I learned a lot. We're going to learn a lot today. Okay. Uh, So yeah, I'm talking about Ida Tarbell. Um, Never heard of this name before. Have you heard of this name before? Okay. Mm -hmm. A very important figure in American journalism. Okay. Uh, Ida was born Ida Minerva Tarbell on November 5th, 1857 in Pennsylvania. And she died January 6th, 1944 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. This is relevant to me because I 
grew up in the area around Pennsylvania, and I went to college in Connecticut. So it's like, wow, mm. she was living and breathing nowhere near my time, but in the areas that I traversed later on. Um, she was an American journalist, lecturer, and chronicler of American industry. She is best known for her like journalistic series, which was later published into a book called The History of Standard Oil, which was published in 1904. Uh, and during her time, she was known as a muckraker, which we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, back to Ida. So she was born in 1857. She was born in a log home in a town called Hatch Hollow in northwestern Pennsylvania. Hatch Hollow, what a cute little name. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're not really familiar with this area of the United States, this area was known as the oil region, which is important for later. Uh, her father, Frank Tarbell, built wooden oil storage tanks and later became an oil producer and refiner. And this is from Ida's writings. Quote, things were going well in father's business. There was ease such as we had never known, luxuries we had never heard of. Then, suddenly, our gay, prosperous town received a blow between the eyes, end quote. Um, and in 1897, a program called the 1872 South Improvement Scheme changed the Pennsylvania oil region forever. Uh, this program was a hidden agreement between the railroads and oil refiners led by John D. Rockefeller. We're going to talk more about this later, but just to say, she grew up in the oil region in PA. Some corrupt business shit happened while she was a young girl, and this informed her political, not political, her, like, journalistic career later on in life. Mm -hmm. So, Ida Tarbell graduated from Allegheny College in 1880. She was the only woman to graduate in her class that year. She briefly taught science in Ohio, but ultimately ended up back in Pennsylvania, where she met the editor of a small magazine. She kind of got it in her head, like, I might be a writer. I want to go to, I want to be a writer. She s used all her savings. She flew herself to, or I don't know, I guess not flew. She boated herself to Paris. She studied at the Sor Sorbonne, Sorbonne uh, there, and she became a journalist. And she started writing, um, you know, articles and things while living in Paris. Uh, da -da -da, let me see. Do -do 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 -do. So she wrote a story on a famous like leader and influential salon host that was around during the French Revolution, Madame Roland. That's one of the things she wrote while she was in Paris. Um, was she writing in French? Do you know? No, I think she was writing in English. Oh, okay. Um, so her work in Paris caught the attention of editor Samuel Sidney McClure, uh, who was looking for writers for his new monthly publication. And in 1894, Samuel Sidney McClure hired Tarbell as an editor at this publication. The publication was called McClure's Magazine, uh, and Tarbell became the most successful writer at the publication, due in part to a series she wrote on Abraham Lincoln, a series that doubled the magazine's circulation. So she wrote, like, I think it was like a 24-part serialized journalistic thing, published in this magazine about chronicling his life, um, and that skyrocketed her to fame. Uh, after publishing Lincoln's bio, she followed it with another serialized bio biography, this time on Napoleon. So she was, like, killing it. Mm -hmm. But as Tarbell was establishing herself as, a like, a voice of biographical information, the landscape of American e economics was changing. Um, we're specifically talking about the rise of monopolistic trusts. And we talked a little bit about this. I didn't get the episode, but we were talking about monopoly. Mm -hmm. many many moons ago um and the woman who designed the board game monopoly was also living during this time it's when like 
capitalism was really getting its foothold in the in the US and people like Rockefeller and many others were starting to monopolize specific industries. And mm-hmm. if you have any remembrance of your American history um, from school, which I have a very, very limited remembrance of this, uh, people didn't like the monopolies and lots mm-hmm. of w- stuff was done to stop the monopolies, right? Anyway, so this is kind of that time period. Um, and as a result of this like economic landscape change, uh, a new a generation of investigative journalists arose. Uh, these journalists would later be dubbed by muckra- muck, dubbed as muckrakers by President Theodore Roosevelt. Their purpose was to expose corruption in business, political lawlessness, um, and it was something that capitalists and monopolists apparently did not like. They did not like these journalists that were kind of like digging into them. Yeah. Um, Tarbell was drawn to this new version of journalism and she had something from her past that seemed like a relevant endeavor to kind of like expose. We're going to pause to kind of flash back to her childhood. Um, mm-hmm. oh, first, first, before we flash back to her childhood, we're going to flash to muckrakers. Uh, it's a term used to describe a type of investigative journalist in pre-World War I USA. Um, and journalists, they are journalists who focused on reform and expose pieces. Um, they provided detailed, accurate journalistic accounts of political and economic corruption and social hardships caused by the power of big business um, and the rapidly industrializing United States. It's not a nice term. It was uh, coined by President Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, in a speech in April of 1906. He borrowed a passage from a writing called The Pilgrim's Progress, um, and he he referred to, quote, the man with the muckrake who could look no way but downward, end quote. And that's how he described these journalists, that these people were just the bottom of the pit. Mm. Muckrakers, okay? Um, muckraking grew out of yellow journalism from the late 1800s, which is essentially, um, if you remember learning about journalism in high school, yellow journalism was sensationalized journalism, kind of like gossipy type stories. But Mm -hmm. what these magazines, these yellow journalism magazines and publications did was kind of like give uh, readers like deep dives into things and started to kind of pique their interests in um, the backgrounds of people's lives and making sure that people who were in power didn't just have complete anonymity. They wanted to know Mm -hmm. who was running, running things. You know, people were, like, mm-hmm. interested in, like, oh, what's Rockefeller's deal? Um, that's kind of, like, how yellow journalism got its foothold. And then muckraking was a step f- higher than that, I guess you could say, where it was, like, literal research and expose journalistic pieces. People uh, need to know. People need to know. And they have a right to know, I think, sometimes. Especially if, you know, everyone is entitled to their own privacy, but people who are running corporations and essentially making business decisions that affect the lives of millions there's going to be mm-hmm. a level of um you being in the public eye that you just have to deal mm-hmm. with you know um anyway so muckraking was heralded by specific publications one of which was tarbell's mcclure's magazine so the magazine that she worked with was one of the most famous publications of the time and published some of the best journalistic pieces 
investigative journalistic pieces of the era and a lot of these are like seminal like found like um like pieces that like if you're a journalist now you'd be like mm-hmm. that is one of the most important pieces of journalism ever came out of this mcclure's magazine tarbell uh included let's see um so, and like I said a moment ago, Ida Turnbull, Tarbell was immediately drawn to this type of journalism because remember in 18, the 1872 South Improvement Scheme, it was a secret agreement between the railroads and the oil refiners. Um, and this is the story that Ida took up. But what is it? So the South Improvement Scheme is synonymous or goes hand in hand with another thing called the Cleveland Massacre. I'd never heard of uh, these either of these two things, but it seems like mm-hmm. a pretty important moment in American history. <laughs> um, so first, the South Improvement Company was founded in 1872 by major railroad and uh, oil interests. Uh, Thomas A. Scott, uh, who was the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad at the time, for instance, uh, John D. Rockefeller and William Henry Vanderbilt, just to name a few familiar American names. Um, the founding of this company was a way for Rockefeller to organize and control the oil industry in the United States under his company, Standard Oil. Um, it's a little complicated, but here's a TLDR. The South Improvement Company secretly worked with the railroads to raise the rates on oil shipment for independent oil men. Okay, so essentially, okay. I think small business oil, their rates were getting raised while like these big con- corporations like Standard Oil were getting rebates mm-hmm. on all of their oil shipments. So the mm-hmm. small men were paying more than the big men. Mm-hmm. Um, la, 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 la. The, the members of South Improvement Company received discounts and rebates to offset the rates and put the independent oil businessmen out of business, one of which was Ida's father. Um, her father, Frank Tarbell, participated against the South Improvement Company through marches and tipping over standard oil railroad tankers. And Ida witnessed all of this as a 14-year-old girl. She later wrote, quote, At the news of all oil... At the news, so when they found out about this scheme... Um, Mm -hmm. All oildom rushed into the streets. Nobody waited to find out his neighbor's opinion. On every lip were were but one word, and that was conspiracy. For weeks, the whole body of oilmen abandoned regular business and surged from town to town, intent on destroying the monster, the 40 thieves, the great anaconda, as they called the mysterious South Improvement Company. Their temper was shown by the mottos on the banners they carried. Down with the conspirators. No compromise. Don't give up the ship. End quote. Uh, Rockefeller was one of the leading members of this new alliance, um, and he thought it was preposterous that, you know, these independent oil men thought it was a conspiracy. Quote, this is from Rockefeller himself. There is no, there is so much false pretense in all this talk about rebates. Rebates and drawbacks were a common practice for years preceding and following this history. So much of the clamor against rebates and drawbacks came from people who knew nothing about business. Uh, who can buy beef cheaper, the housewife for her family, the steward for a club or hotel, or the quartermaster or commissary for an army? Who is entitled to better rebates from a railroad, those who give it for transportation 5,000 barrels a day, or those who give it 500 barrels or 50 barrels? End quote. So essentially he's saying, like, he's better at business, mm-hmm. and that's why he's entitled to rebates. Um, so, like, maybe sell more oil and then you'll get a rebate is kind of what mm-hmm. he's saying. Um, but thankfully in 18 of, uh, 
thankfully, in April of 1872, the South Improvement Company's uh, charter was repealed by the Pennsylvania legislature before it even conducted a single transaction. So it didn't end up happening. Um, but this was just the beginning of Rockefeller's business scheme, really, and it was part of what Ida Tarbell planned to investigate. So it, the scheme failed. But behind the scenes, Rockefeller was like, I know this thing is going to fail, so I'm going to work on some other shady shit. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. So this whole scheme was the beginning of Rockefeller's rise to monopolization of the oil industry in the United States. The first mm -hmm. stage failed, but every stage after, he succeeded in. And Tarbell was investigating Rockefeller's rise to power and the monopolization that Standard Oil, Rockefeller's company, had in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Okay, back to Ida. She convinced her editor, McClure, to let her write on the subject, and he agreed to a three-part series on the oil trust. Tarbell's father um, feared that Rockefeller would, like, lash out at her, and the magazine pleaded with his daughter to not do this expose, and she was like, mm, I'm not scared of Rockefeller. Um, so for almost two years, she painstakingly looked through volumes of public records, court testimonies, state and federal reports, and newspaper coverage. And from those records, she gathered a mind-boggling wealth of information on Rockefeller's ascent to power and the methods he used by Standard Oil to gain control over all oil refineries in the United States. Uh, and flashing back to the whole Cleveland massacre thing, um, while the scheme didn't work, well, it was kind of like in the forefront – Rockefeller purchased 22 of the 26 oil refinery competitors, okay? Uh, and so while the scheme eventually failed, Rockefeller had moved on and he was already on his way to monopolizing all of the oil refineries in that region. Uh, he now controlled what would become the foundation for the biggest industrial empire of its time. This is from Rockefeller's uh, biographer, Ron Chernow, quote, it was really the first great step on John D's march to industrial supremacy because once he had a monopoly over the Cleveland refineries, he then marched on and did the same thing in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, and the other refining centers. So that was really the major turning point in his career, and it was really one of the most shameful episodes of his career. And this mm. is what Ida was writing about. Is that the Cleveland Massacre? Yeah. So the Cleveland okay. Massacre is like these really powerful men made a secret company, the South Improvement mm -hmm. Company. And the South Improvement Company was the company that was giving the major oil companies rebates on shipping and making this, the independent oil refiners pay more. The Pennsylvania legislature was like, fuck that, that's not going to fly for us. But while the, this was all in courts, Rockefeller secretly bought all of these Cleveland refineries, and it was the first step for him becoming an oil magnet and, like, an oil monopoly. So he bought the Cleveland refineries, then he went to Pittsburgh and bought the Pittsburgh refineries, did the same thing in Philadelphia, Baltimore, and so on and so forth. So, like, mm -hmm. one of the things Ida found out was, like, Rockefeller knew how to play the public scene while he was playing real business behind the scene. Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of like what she was investigating, which is the point of what I'm talking about is Ida and her investigation. So back to Ida. Um, she found a lot in the two years that she did all this investigation. The information was dense and there was a lot of it. But Ida was an impressive lady. She was able to digest Rockefeller's complicated business maneuvers into a narrative that was accessible and engaging to like your average Joe. From Ida's writing, quote, now it takes time to secure and to keep that which the public has decided it is not for general good that you have. It takes time 
and caution to perfect anything which must be concealed. It takes time to crush men who are pursuing legitimate trade. But one of Mr. Rockefeller's most impressive characteristics is patience. There never was a more patient man or one who could dare more while he waited. He was like a general who, besieging a city surrounded by fortified hills, views from a balloon the whole great field and sees how, this point taken, that must fall. The hill reached, that fort is commanded, and nothing was too small. The corner grocery store in Browntown, the humble refining still in Oil Creek, the shortest private pipeline, nothing for little things grow, end quote. So she's basically talking about how he has incredible patience, and with his patience, he uses he uses his patience and his business acumen to monopolize the oil industry in the U.S. Mm-hmm. She published the first part of her series, The History of Standard Oil Company, in November of 1902. Uh, there was only supposed to be three parts. Well, it grew into a 19-part series published between 1902 and 1904. She wrote a detailed expose of Rockefeller's unethical tactics, um, and she sympathetically portrayed the plight of Pennsylvania's oil workers, independent oil workers. Um, her writings weren't, like, explicitly anti-capitalist, um, but she did condemn Rockefeller and Standard Oil's, quote, open disregard for decent ethical business practices by capitalists and said, quote, they never they had never played fair and uh, that ruined their greatness for me. Uh, but she did also in her writings t- took care to acknowledge Rockefeller's brilliance and flawlessness of his business structure. So there's kind of like she's talking about how, oh, they're so shitty and immoral, but he's really, really smart. Um, mm hmm. In total, Tarbell researched the Standard Oil Company and Rockefeller for um, the better part of five years, and she ended her series with a two-part character study on Rockefeller specifically. She focused on um, his weary appearance. She called him, quote, the oldest man in the world, a living mummy. (laughs) I love that for her. Burn. (laughs) Right? Uh, And she accused him of being money mad and a hypocrite. Um, Our national life is on every side distinctly poorer, uglier, meaner for the kind of influence he exercises, end quote. And Rockefeller did not like that. Um, He called Tarbell, quote, that poisonous woman. But he refused to engage in any public rebuttal for her allegations, telling his advisors, quote, not a word, not a word about that misguided woman. So the history of the Standard Oil Company is considered a landmark uh, in the history of investigative journalism. Uh, it's also the most comprehensive study of the the building of Rockefeller's oil empire. Um, in 1999, it was listed number five among the top 100 works of 20th century American journalism. After its publication, Ida was considered one of the most influential women in the country, going on to pursue numerous writing and lecturing engagement. Um, and then... I thought this was interesting that despite her accomplishments as a woman working at the turn of the century, she opposed the suffrage movement, uh, arguing that traditional female roles had been belittled by women's rights advocates um, and that women's contributions belonged in the private sphere. I'm just like, you you can never just have like a fucking (laughs) one of these characters that we find in the crossword just be just kind of normal. You know, there's always something, right? It doesn't really make any sense considering she worked in the public. Did a lot of work in the public sphere. I know. Um, she also, in her early writing, she talks a lot about how she wants to be free, but the only way for a woman to be free is to be a spinster, is to, like, never get mm-hmm. married. I actually never didn't see if she got married. I don't know if she ever did, but 
uh, she did eventually die in 1944 uh, at, at the age of 86 of pneumonia. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm interested in this like history of Standard Oil Company now because I'm kind of like Rockefeller <laughs> sounds like a dick, and I want to like read more about how horrible he was. But yeah, um, oh, I I wanted to say the the articles that I got information from if you're curious to learn more about this because i kind of was trying to like simplify some of the stuff that was going on with rockefeller there's a lot going on that i can't talk about um Mm -hmm. there's a great article on the atlantic of course called the woman who made modern journalism uh by liza mundy there's also a couple great articles on pbs and the smithsonian mag would recommend checking them out um i'll try to remember to include some of the links in the episode description but no promises um but that's that's Ida Tarbell for you. That's Ida. That's Ida. I wonder if there's any Tarbell Avenues. Probably. Uh, in Pennsylvania. She's from, you know, Hatch Hollow, Pennsylvania. I bet there is. Bet Something there to is. look up. Something um, to look up. All right. If you live in Pennsylvania and you know, let us know. Yes. Of course, you can always Google it. If you live on any kind of interesting street, well, it's kind of hard without telling everyone where you live. If you know of any interesting street names, <laughs> let us know. Um, and as yeah. uh, you know, as you keep on keeping on out there, thinking about where your street names come from, thinking about Standard Oil Company and John D. Rockefeller. Um, yes, you do. Just a reminder to always keep curious, our mm-hmm. fine feathered friends. And um, until next time, you can catch us. You can come talk to us. Come, come on down. Come say hi. You can find us on Twitter at the Good Eve Girls. Or Instagram at the Good Evening Girls. Or TikTok at the Good Eve Girls. And we'll see you next time. Say, well, actually, we probably won't have an, another episode next week because uh, I'm unfortunately oh, yeah. traveling. Sorry, y'all. Sorry to drop it on you at the very last minute. We always forget to do this at the top of the episode. I know. So <laughs> we'll see you like, in two you know, weeks. People, if you're still listening, you're a true <laughs> fan. So you won't be shocked next week when we don't post. But we'll post exactly. on Twitter that we're not we posting. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, so we'll see you in two weeks, our fine feather friends. And until then, keep curious. Mm, bye-bye. Bye. Bye.